Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Where can you get the best medical information anytime, anywhere? I hope right here on The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Almost everyone by their adulthood has seen a dermatologist, whether it's for a rash, a pimple, a cancer, or even a Botox injection. Dermatology, compared to most areas of medicine, has sort of a, a feel-good vibe. You know, your skin is a, 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 you know is very obvious to everybody, including yourself. I mean, for example, if you have a liver spot, nobody's going to see it. But if you have a, a spot on your face, people are going to see it. And the nice thing in dermatology is they seem to have immediate positive impact in helping their patients, which is obviously a really nice thing. Dermatologists also treat many serious medical conditions from psoriasis, eczema, and different forms of cancer, ranging from basal and squamous cells to deadly melanomas. My guest today, Dr. Arnold Toback, epitomizes everything that you want in your dermatologist. He's super smart, he's super nice, and he always gives you the positive way to handle your skin problem. I've known Dr. Toback uh, for over 30 years when we cross-trained at Columbia Presbyterian. Um, he is an assistant clinical professor of dermatology at Columbia Presbyterian Medical College. And I'm really excited today to actually have this time to ask him lots of questions and get his opinions on many topics of dermatology. So with that, I'm really excited to welcome my colleague, my friend, my dermatologist, Dr. Arnold Toback to the podcast. Thank you, Dean. Thanks for having me here. Okay. So uh, I always like to ask a little background stuff to begin with. So I know you, like myself, trained initially, I think, in internal medicine, and then you decided to specialize in dermatology. Why did you... No. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting thing how I got into dermatology. Yeah, how did you like? How did you decide to? Uh, I, I guess there will be a two part question. How did you decide on dermatology? And was there? I you know somebody. I know someone we both know. But is there any also particular dermatologist that had a big influence on your career? Yeah, absolutely. Um, dermatology was a field that I never considered going into when I was at medical school before medical school. Growing up, I certainly knew the importance of a dermatologist. I, I sought care when I was a, a teenager and, and older than that. Uh, so for me, when I was finished my medical training, I went into internal medicine. You know, I was planning on being a primary care internist, taking care of patients, uh, as, as you'd expect your internist nowadays to do, but a kind of a general, as a general internist. Um, and it was really the influence of a particular person during my internal medicine residency uh, Dr. Paul Krasinski up at the University of Vermont, who was uh, my mentor, as well as many other people's mentors who went into dermatology purely by example. And for us, there were situations at the university, you know, at a an academic institution with lots of in-hospital sick patients that were, were difficult to diagnose and consistently he seemed to come across to be able to teach us and really make sense of what that patient was experiencing, what we could do to help the patient. And it was really by his example that I, when I was finishing internal medicine, uh, I just got interested and stimulated to say, yeah, I'd like to pursue that a little bit more. I felt kind of odd in my practice of general internal medicine. I'd be dealing with diabetes and hypertension and, and multiple different issues. And a patient would say, yeah, thanks, fine. But how about this spot right here? Is that important or not? And I'd be 
well, I think it's okay, but you know, you're going to have to see the dermatologist. And situations kept coming up that kept saying, yeah, you know, I shouldn't need to send someone else off about that. I should understand that in great detail. And as you said, you know, we all know about dermat skin. We all have skin. And uh, the more learning that uh, I pursued and the more reading and the more uh, study I did, you, you realize very, very quickly the skin is more than just a some kind of a shell or an envelope. It's an extreme, it's the largest organ of the body and it's extremely active on all levels of regular be metabolism, uh, water retention, sweating, immunology. It's a very complicated, fascinating organ. It just, it just took, I, that was my interest and that's where mm. it kind of grabbed me. And Columbia in particular, uh, was a place I had done an elective my last year medical school where I met some of my mentors. Uh, Bob Walther in particular, uh, they were encouraging even as a medical student, but it just didn't grab me. And Paul Krasinski was my my mentor, eventually my wife's mentor too, and uh, sadly passed away a few years ago. But all those years since then, he's always been a, a great colleague and a great friend and uh, a wonderful professor, professional physician and humanist. So uh, that you was know, who influenced me. Yeah. You know, it's interesting in dermatology versus internal medicine. I thought about this a lot. You know, when, I mean, I always admired in my career what I call the medical detectives, you know, the ones that almost like the Sherlock Holmes, they piece yes, things together absolutely. and they get the really, you know, they get the key information and they make the diagnosis. And in medicine, internal medicine specifically, your, your history, as you know, is key. You know, you want to get any kind of little facts that may point you in the right direction. Um, so I, again, in my career in internal medicine, there were certain people that I really respected. Now, dermatology, which was very interesting when I did my training a little bit at Columbia during my right. fellowship in allergy, again, and we had some doctors that, you know, overlapped in our careers, like Dr. Vincent Beltrani Sr., who sure. to me was a tremendous influence. He was one of the few board certified allergists and dermatologists in the country. Right. Um, but it's interesting because when you guys would look at a, a patient, it's interesting. The first thing you would say is that we don't want any history. We want to just look at the rash or the lesion. And then after getting all, you know, kind of really, you know, going through your description of it, which is really interesting in dermatology, you know, because a lot of times internists say, oh, the person has a rash, you know, and you guys are looking, oh, right. is it, is it hyperkeratotic? Is it erythematous? You know, et cetera, et cetera. Is it flat? And then once you had that, then later on you would go back, um, to, you know, to use the history. And I also found that very interesting. Even when I, I'll never forget this. When I was in private practice, I was called by a pediatrician because one of his, <laughs> one of his staff's children had uh, this really, uh, scary rash. I'll, I'll leave it at first like that and called me in to see it. And I, again, using my Columbia training, I went in there. I said, I don't want to know, you know, any history yet. I want to just look at the rashes. And it was so interesting. And you could appreciate this. I was looking at the rash. It was diffuse, like all over the body. It um, it had essentially it had uh, like bullseyes all over the place, right. and so I started work my differential in my mind, and then I said, have, you know, I went through a couple of my questions. Have you been on any medications? Oh, I just took antibiotics, penicillin, right. or something for a sore throat. It was erythema multiforme. Right. You know, as you know, which is, it could be a potentially dangerous rash. So again, that's what I, I'll never make me forget that, you know, again, dermatology training, a really good dermatologist, is sort of different than internal medicine 
to get to that. Um, well, it is, although I guess since I'm a hybrid and kind mm-hmm. of like your model of immunology, we both did internal medicine. Yeah. yeah. History is still essential for that is important. No, no thing, question. But you're absolutely right. There's some people who say, Don't say a thing, let me look. Yeah. But for me, I really want to walk in saying already from a story, right. I'm already having a picture. And now it, so it can goes it goes both ways. Or maybe it things that comes in with a story, and as you're examining them, other things show up. Right. And then they redirect some of those questions to make it more uh, more specific and really kind of hone in. But, yeah. but the key is not to grab not to grab that diagnosis right away too quickly because that's another one of those errors of medical thinking. You know, when you start excluding and yeah. start thinking, and now you suddenly all your questions are about that one problem, you miss those other issues. And I'm sure you do the same thing in internal medicine when you're trying yeah, to treat you know, a patient. It doesn't right. make sense. Sometimes you have to step back and say, "Let me start all over again and take that history right from the beginning." Yeah, you know, that's a great point. I'll never forget, again, was Dr. Beltrani saying sometimes, like, you know, he was treating patients, you know, for certain, you know, chronic skin conditions. And especially when you're seeing the patient year after year, you know, you get sort of lulled into, oh, this is a patient that has psoriasis, this is a patient that has eczema, you know, and all of a sudden they have another lesion on their face or somewhere. And I liked his approach also, the way I think you guys are trained at Columbia, like, you know what, once in a while... Take a step, make believe you're seeing the patient for the first time, right. which right. is really difficult because you, can, yep. you know the patient so well. You have all their history, et cetera. And now all of a sudden coming in with fresh eyes yes. is not the easiest thing, but it's really important. Yeah, very, very yeah. much so. All very right, much. let's move on to something that really, unfortunately, fascinates me and has affected me in the past year. It's about sunscreens and skin cancers. Sure. Now, as you know, being my dermatologist, I was diagnosed with skin cancer twice this past year. That was a big wake-up call. Fortunately, it wasn't life-threatening, but it was certainly highly unpleasant, especially the most surgery. Right. <laughs> and it's interesting because I'm not a sun worshiper. I, you know... I, I would tend to burn easily, so I was pretty careful, except, you know, growing up, I was a tennis player, and I spent hours on mm-hmm. the tennis court, you know, in my teens, um, all through high school, and I still like biking and, you know, playing a little tennis, uh, but I never used sunscreen. I mean, it was just something we never mm-hmm. did, right. Uh, right. which today I know I think has really changed. So I guess my first question to you is, are most skin cancers a result of not using sunscreen when we were growing up versus using them now? I mean, because, you know, yeah. you know, the, I remember hearing something to the effect of like if you've had seven bad burns in your life, again, you're more prone to melanomas. And, you know, again, now we're gopping on the well, the sunscreen, but is it too late? Right. Great question. And patients will often say that, oh, I already have these skin cancers. Why? So I'm just, I don't need the sunscreen. I'm, I'm already beyond. And I think, um, I think the key is, as, you know, <laughs> we've had this discussion. So most patients that we do see with skin cancer at some point, unless they have a genetic disease specific, uh, like xeroderma pigmentosum or these things that are inherited right. that make you extremely susceptible. Most patients that we see have had their sun exposure in their youth. Right. And we there's an enormous delay between that sun exposure and seeing the chronic damaging effects. So it's not just skin cancers, but the discolorations, aging of the skin. And when I see a patient coming in with skin cancer or even just examining them, the point I always make is 
it's almost like hieroglyphics. When you look at someone's skin, you're seeing a story, a story from what they did in their youth. or mm. And it didn't need to be someone who they'll tell me, oh, I never sat out with a reflector. I was never yes. one to just, it's not that. It's that did your skin have exposure? Were right. you hiking? Did you play sports as a kid? You know, were you the farmer that was out there working, not trying to get a suntan, but having the exposure? Right. And it's that early exposure that takes then a delay of decades before you see the skin cancers emerge. Having said that, and the patient asks, well, okay, I guess it's too late. No need to use sunscreen. And my argument with them would be, you need to use sunscreen. For, first of all, if there's been the exposure in your past and you've had some of that DNA damage in the outer layer of skin that would eventually come out, it will come out more rapidly with continued sun exposure. I mean, I don't know if people know this. People have had experience of being the sun, getting a tan, as you said, or getting a burn. Much of that is being protective because there's been damage to the skin and the skin's trying to protect itself, whether it be by turning that darker color, having, having created its own sunscreen effect. You need to have that protection because the sun exposure will cause a very significant immune change. We use the immunologic changes of light, ultraviolet, therapeutically. Psoriasis, eczema, cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. We use ultraviolet light to treat those things because we know ultraviolet is suppressing a significant part of the immune system in the outer layer of skin. So there we're using it therapeutically, but if you're not looking at it that way, it's like, gee, I've had this damage when I was a kid. Hmm, I've had a skin cancer. Am I brewing others? And all you need to do is just suppress your immune system a little bit more in the outer layer of skin. Okay, and now sense. we're going to see them emerge more so. Right. The other mm. thing, which is kind of a corollary, is that uh, you know patients say, well, it's too late. Forget about the skin cancers. How about just looking good? Well, right. I mean, we're, we're going to get to that later we're on. Get I mean, to that. And, the and theme is from cancers to cosmetics. Because, yeah, right. I mean, everybody, nobody wants skin cancers, but everybody else doesn't want to look like 10, 15 years older than they have to. Absolutely uh, true. But let me ask you this, too. Because I'll never forget this study. And I feel like it was squashed a while back for probably political and maybe medical reasons. I don't know if you remember this. I think it was about 20 years ago. There was a study that came out of Australia that said, believe it or not, sunscreens are bad for you. And the, the caveat, I just want listeners to make sure they're paying attention, was that I think that what the article was essentially saying was that they're bad for you because they give you a false sense of security. Right. Meaning, you know, you put, you know, some nice sunscreen on and right. you go out and you put it out there and, you know, you cover yourself as best that you can. And then you go out there for two, three hours gardening or going for a long bike ride or whatever. Whereas if you had, you know, uh, a really good hat protecting, you know, blocking the sun, wearing long sleeve shirts, you know, things that a lot of us don't want to do in the summertime. Right. And I, I think they were saying that in that study, I don't know if you recall, because I figured you probably I reviewed do. it in your, you know, with your rounds and everything at, at Columbia, that, you know, that it actually was increasing the risk of cancer. And I don't know, remember that seemed to get squashed. Right. You know, very, so what was the uh, sort of the takeaway on that? You know, Dean, I think there, there's logic to it. If you have someone like Woody Allen's old line, he doesn't he, he doesn't tan, he strokes. You know, it's, <laughs> it, yeah, I remember 
And, and the fact is some people cannot go in the sun because they're so sensitive. Yeah. And now you say, wow, I can really go out now because I have the sunscreen. I'm not burning. Yes, you can imagine that person having significantly okay. more sun exposure given that, as you said, that false sense of security. So let me let me make a probably mm. two important points. One is that sunscreens are just part of the armamentaria that we should really be taking on board in terms of, of, of protection, including doing our activities out of doors when we're given the chance to before 10 o'clock in the morning, after 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Wear the hat, wear the protective clothing is just one of many things. I don't want to show you the tan on my arm underneath my wristband. I wear a 50 every time I'm outside hiking and I hike all the time and I play sports out of doors. I golf and through my sunscreen, I'm getting tan. So sunscreens are not a hundred percent effective. So I think that you need to have that as part of a number of things you can do. Other things are that. Sunscreens are different. Not every sunscreen works the same way. Okay. And this gets into this whole question of SPF, sun protection factor. And people will say to me, oh, I read, I don't need more than an SPF 15, one five fifteen, And that, that's what I use. And it's in my makeup. And that's what I use. And what I would tell patients, there are issues with that. One of them is general. Use the highest number you can find. Quite simply, Sunscreen, sun protection factor 15 means that if, let's say, it would take you 10 minutes of sun exposure at noontime to get a sunburn, now it's going to take you 15 times more of that time, 15 times 10, to absorb that same amount of ultraviolet light. So you're getting this screen. No one's saying it's actually blocking everything out. But some of it is being blocked out. And essentially, below 15, the percentage of sun that's being ultraviolet that's being blocked begins to drop off very quickly. So 15 is the minimum number to give Mm. you a reasonable amount of sun protection. That assumes you're putting it on to the manufacturer's specification, not a little spritz, one little pump and schmear. They may say you need to do 10 pumps to get the level of thickness or absorption locally that will then give you that protection. So it can be underutilized. And how many people continue to put it on? They go in the ocean, they come right out. Some people put sunscreen back on again. Some don't. Some will have their two and a half hour of tennis or their four hours of golf or their six hours of hiking. Do you stop in the middle of your golf to then put on more cream. Some people well, do. Most people don't. Right. So I was about to ask you, that, that's a really great point because as you mentioned, you like to golf. I know you do a lot of different things. You're yeah, pretty yeah, a polyglot in a lot of ways. <laughs> but let's say you're, you're playing golf and let's just say, I don't know, you, I don't know, maybe your tee time started at eight or nine, but you're yes. getting by midday. Yes. Um, are you typically whipping out the sunscreen and putting a little bit more on um, and passing great, along? Great question. I passing don't. along to your co-players yeah, or... Yeah. I don't, and that's why I use a higher number. Oh, okay. And so maybe my my fifty five zero is now sweated off a little bit. Now maybe I'm getting a twenty nine or a thirty or thirty five. Mm-hmm. But if you use a fifteen at the mm. minimum number mm. required, the second that starts dropping off, now you're getting an excessive sun exposure, excessive damage, DNA damage to your skin, and you think you've done the right thing. 
The other thing, so that's why I like the higher numbers. The other thing is that the higher number sunscreens, 30 or higher, tend to have combinations of either physical blocks, which are the zinc and titanium, or the chemical sunscreens in combination that tend to be more broad spectrum. So SPF typically refers to UVB, the sunburn spectrum. Mm -hmm. However, UVA, what people go into in sun tanning parlors, which doesn't necessarily burn you, penetrates much more deeply in the skin, ages the skin much Mm -hmm. more rapidly, causes those discolorations, and is a co-cancer-producing wavelength, you need protection from UVA. So the combinations of sunscreens with their higher numbers tend to begin to block UVA also. So for me, the smallest number I'll ever recommend to a patient is 30, 30. That's the number, the minimum. So let me ask you a couple of really key things because these are really great points for our listeners. Um, And some of the things I have here, I know that you've recommended to me. So I typically put like this where I get one of these little Elta pumps, like SPF 46. Right. You know, okay. And a lot of times I'll do in my arm because it comes in a bigger tube is a 30. But my question to you is a couple of parts here. First of all, why is it that our nose and our ears seem to really take the brunt of this? I mean, it's like, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure you've seen thousands of patients. I mean, have you ever seen like we're right on the chin, somebody? Oh, sure. Oh, really? sure. I mean, so it's not, it's not just, it's not just like the nose and the it's ears. It's not like, just the nose, but, but I think, I think it's a really good point you're asking. We have like a, we have like a big nose or something. I don't know. Is, it's like, we, 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 you know, we get light exposure all year. And right. yes, in, in the north, in the northern hemisphere, in the winter time, yeah, the angle of the sun is less potent. So it's harder for us to sunburn. But you go to elevation, you're in the mountains, you're snowshoeing. You're hiking. Yeah. Uh, you're you're skiing. Right. You're getting much more ultraviolet exposure in the dead of winter. So the people who I don't I don't ski anymore, but those people who would ski would always come back with that sunburn look, and they take their goggles off and the big right. park around them. So they're getting sun exposure. Yeah. And the fact is, you you have layers of clothing on. The only parts that may be exposed are going to be your nose, your cheeks, your ears. Mm. So all year that exposure, where perhaps. Our chest, our legs, our arms may have no exposure except for those, you know, warmer climates and when you're outside. So I think that's yeah, one that, of the main interesting. Reasons. The other thing, too, I think the, uh, the, the listeners and patients have to be aware of, too, even cloudy days. I mean, is that also like a tricky thing? Because like Absolutely. You say, right, like you'll say, I know I love playing tennis when it's a cloudy day. I mean, I, I yeah. like playing when it's sunny, but I do. I, I have more energy when it's a little cloudy because it's not doesn't feel as hot. Oh, but sure. But the but the UV is still could be the same. It's or still even getting greater. through. It is still mm. getting through. Absolutely, and mm. you need the protection. Yeah, to get that's all. It's very similar to someone who is you know biking or let's say on the on the ocean and they're in a sailboat and it's a breeze and it feels yeah. really great. You oh. never feel it until you come inside and then suddenly you look at yourself and you're a lobster. You know, so, so the I water think, also is is also you know I, I you know I like oh, to yeah. go in a pool and. Yes. Um, I've noticed over the years, because I, I really wasn't a pool person until the last few years, but I love it now. I just find it very relaxing. But the whole idea of like being at a pool or by the ocean or out on a boat, is it true Like the water's reflection is even Absolutely. intensifies? The, and I think uh, of it basically, those reflectors. They're reflectors. Exactly, it's exactly mm. the same situation. In addition, water will not remove all ultraviolet, so you're getting it in the water. And for people who are being very careful, and they wear their t-shirt into the into the ocean or the pool 
when it's dry, you may get some protection, but as it gets wet, the uh, the transmission of ultraviolet through the that garment is much higher. Oh, it's interesting. Oh, yeah, that, that could be very. I didn't realize that because yes. you know um, sometimes you think oh, I'm wearing a, a t-shirt or something that's not really meant to be sun protective. You're like, oh, I'm wearing the the shirt. I should be okay. But you're saying once it gets wet, oh that yeah, barrier is it, that is minimized, diminished hugely. Wow, Usually. very interesting. One other thing I wanted before we we finish up a little bit on the sunscreens now, because you mentioned a couple of chemicals, which I, again I learned way back when also you know again doing the training at Dermot, uh, at Columbia. So things like zinc oxide, because there are a lot of yeah. different chemicals. Zinc oxide yeah. would be considered a block. You know, zinc oxide is the white substance. You know that we right. used to see the lifeguards had on their nose and baby right. we put on their rashes lately i'm looking like the white ghost because i'm yes. uh, i'm very paranoid yes. and i'm you know i'm smearing it all over my face the really the thick one i think it's like 20 percent. it's you know the heavy yes. duty but in a regular sunscreen or we'll call it or is that what determines like a sun block if you're having, yeah, i think so i think okay. that would be much more so the chemical sunscreens that really are acting as filters or absorbing the ultraviolet light Mm -hmm. and you get the blocks which are really i i make it akin to your window that you pull the shade down Mm -hmm. nothing is going to come through you go to a movie theater you have Mm -hmm. walls you block out Mm -hmm. all that light that's what's happening with the physical sunscreens and those would be zinc and titanium. titanium. And yeah, years back, everyone had walked around with the big white nose. Oh, the lifeguards. You're like, oh, oh absolutely. Yeah. They were lucky. They were cool, though, because they had the rest of their body was tan. <laughs> they were usually like in really good shape. But, you know, you're like, they didn't right. look weird. You That's know, the, right. They, you know, the typical person, if I'm in Florida once in a while, you see a lot of older people, you know, they, they walk around these big white masks all over yeah. their face. You're like, that looks very strange. But, you know, it, not, it, but it, you yeah, know what? Tech- Keeps you out of the right. dermatologist's office. <laughs> You're right. That that kabuki makeup or that uh, cadaverous look. But what's yeah. interesting is that the more recent products are what are called now micronized. Right. So although they might go on lighter white, typically within a few minutes, they really lighten up quite a bit to the point of not having that that stark white appearance. So I think they're yeah. getting cosmetically more acceptable. And also many people get those white uh, zinc or titanium oxide uh, sun blocks with pigmentation in it. Yeah, so they seen, look like I, they kind of look they, like makeup. They do. I, the only problem with those, I can tell, it ruins all your clothing. Horrible. That stuff does Every not come next, out. The next yeah, miserable. I, I totally any kind agree. of nice shirt I've ever had. You know, my wife used to make fun of me. She goes, oh, "You ruined another shirt." You know. You so go. anyway, yeah, I don't unfortunately recommend those unless you're, you know, going bare. Um, <laughs> I want to ask you also too. Um, Yeah. Um, you know, when should someone see a dermatologist about a new mark on their skin? Like lately, I'm very paranoid. I, I'll quickly run to you. I have something new. I'm like saying this wasn't here before. But, you know, not everybody has time or is able to right. do that. But if people do self-checks, especially mm-hmm. now at the end of the summer when they've been exposed, what's the – what would be some of the guidelines you would recommend sure. to say, you know what, you should go see somebody? Sure. Well, I think you've heard, you know, the acronym or people have used for a long time, the A, B, C, D, E's of E's. growth. So and, okay. and, and just to break that down real quickly, A, this, this is concerning something you're seeing on your skin that you never noticed before or something right. that you've had that you never took the time to look at and now you're looking. Right. And the features that we look for are number one, A, for asymmetry. So the spot, whether it be red, pink, brown, 
appears to be asymmetric. One half doesn't look like the other half. It appears to be things kind of mushed together in a way that isn't a circle, isn't an oval, isn't something that you would say, oh, that looks pretty much like all the other spots I have. There's something you, about it that's Dr. shaped. Arnie, would you recommend that they take like a little bit of a magnifying glass? Sometimes with all of us are odd. Yeah, no, no re- there, there's no reason not to. Yeah, okay. Except, except you know, trying to put perspective on it. Because mm-hmm. you take any spot and, and blow, blow it up, it up yeah. big enough, you're going to pixelate, and you're going to start seeing irregularities in Yes, right. So, okay. so the, the, the growth Symmetry. or whatever you're looking at is A, asymmetric. B, the border is not round or smooth. It's missing pieces with mm-hmm. the same proviso that, you know, you may have lots of other ones like certain, whatever you call liver spots, which you understand have nothing to do with your liver. It really is sun damage that takes right. years to come out right they that, that they're not notched or missing pieces that that appear to be just different see mm-hmm. for color multiple colors often a tip off and again many benign growths can have multiple colors in them and it requires knowing what you're looking at but these are general guidelines d right. was always discussed as being diameter somehow bigger than the uh, six millimeters, the eraser head on the, on the top of a, of a pencil. Yeah, that's a good example. That, mm-hmm. Maybe that's concerning, but relative. Many people have big growths that they've had for ages, and that's not a problem. E is probably the most important. I've never heard of E. What is E? e I, I know it was ABCD. <laughs> yep, ABCD, E for evolving. Ah. Something is changing. Okay. And I think that would be the take-home message for anyone listening to this. If you've had things you've had before, and you've had them for years, and they're unchanging, they cause you nothing at all, if now it seems to be different, that's not a bad time to say, you know what, let me get this thing checked out. Right. And that requires someone to be looking at themselves, or right. a significant other to be looking at themselves. And that's right. one of the many, many reasons couples that's right, live yeah. longer than those who are not. Oh, wow. Many, many, many reasons, besides being an advocate, besides noticing things that that person may never notice. But they'll see, you can get seen, you can't see your back very well, you know, the back of your head, uh, the back of your neck. And uh, that's where looking at each other is useful. So when should people get checked out? It's, it's a really great, great question. There's not one particular time, because I have a lot of patients who have kids. Oh, should my kids come on in? Well, I'd say if they're growths, that you're uncomfortable with, that the pediatrician's uncomfortable with, see a dermatologist. As an adult, we do tend to want to look yearly. If I have a patient that has had a history of skin cancer or pre-cancers or a strong family history of skin cancers, they may be coming in twice a year. Uh You know, I mean, the concept being almost like when you go to the dentist, when I get my dental checkup, I get a cleaning. Okay, great. My gums are in great shape. I have no cavities. I'm probably going to go back at some point for a routine follow-up because I know the dentist can't guarantee me I'm not going to have a cavity, but I'd rather get it when it's tiny and doesn't become a root canal and I lose the tooth and have to have an implant or or just a tooth. Same thing with skin cancers and growths. If you're doing it on a regular basis, it doesn't mean you can't get a basal cell, squamous cell carcinoma, melanoma. But get it when it's early and easily treatable and won't change your life. And that goes to one other thing. Again, in terms of this evolving or something changing, many, many skin cancers really are, are very imperceptible 
unless something has happened to them. They get irritated. You're drying yourself after showering. And gee, I got this little spot that keeps bleeding occasionally. That was exactly what happened to me when I came to you. I, ah. I had a spot on the inner part of my nose and it was weird because I thought, oh, I scratched myself. You know, it was really, it was that small at the time, whatever too. Right. And then after a while, you know, I was looking, I had some of the dermatology training because then after a while I was like, Oh, this, that scratch is like not really getting better, you know. So then I right. came to you and said, "Oh, let's take a little scrape," and voila. That's but right. yeah, it's, uh, right. it's it can be subtle. I guess that's our oh, point. Oh, it can be it very subtle. It doesn't I have to look one... dangerous, mean, you know, angry. Yeah. It can be it can and, be the and, the thing that just doesn't heal, you know. And right? that goes back to sometimes other people, and again, having been yeah. an internist before becoming yeah. a dermatologist, I've had patients sent to me saying, "Oh, I saw my internist." And they said, I'm totally fine. And I'm still saying, you know what? We're going to look you over. And this one older woman, I'll never forget, she had probably more than seven basal cells on her face sitting right there, but was reassured. And again, it's the question of just training. I mean, don't don't ask me at this point to listen to a subtle heart murmur and tell you what the Mm -hmm. valvular abnormality is. I haven't done that in years. We're trained to look at skin. And so we're comfortable doing that. We do try to train family practitioners, internists to get a sense of things that we're concerned about. But if someone comes through and rotates with dermatology, it doesn't necessarily mean you're a dermatologist. Okay, wait, I have to ask you this really tough question. Okay, go ahead. As a dermatologist with dermatology eyes, when you go to a, a function, a wedding, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, a party, whatever, too, and you're walking around the room and you're seeing things that you would normally see in your exam room, do you have to turn off your dermatology brain or do you say something to somebody if you like, oh, I think you should get that checked out? You, you know, okay. Well, medical issues that you, I never do that with a cosmetic issue. Oh, never ever consider right. that. But if I'm seeing someone I'm talking to and there's something sitting that's horribly obvious, I might say, yeah, you know, I'm just going to say to you, I, I won't say anything more than say you really, Maybe just get this checked out. Okay. Yeah. Do you, get you know, it's really out. funny because I'll never forget this. It was a couple of years ago. <laughs> there was a, uh, yeah, there was a, there was a, uh, a hockey player that uh, they kept on, must have zooming in close on him, like, you know, hitting the boards with another player, but he had like this big mole or something on yes. his neck. Do you remember hearing yes. the story? And one of the fans yeah. somehow reached out to him to get it checked out. And it wasn't a dermatologist. It was just a fan. Right. And sure enough, it was, uh, um, I think it was a melanoma and it saved his life. Oh yeah. So, oh, yeah. uh, you know, and, more crazy that's things not that happen. It's not an unusual story. I had, I've had more than yeah. one patient that I recall right now, specifically who had a new girlfriend who said, mm. who looked at his back and just said, uh, you better get that checked out. And it, was, it was an invasive melanoma, which oh, he boy. probably has had, for years. Oh, wow. Probably. Hmm. All right. Let's move on to something less scary, but sure. just as upsetting. Let's, let's put it this way. We, you, you know from your work with teenagers, you know, acne can be a heartbreak for teenagers. Sure. I mean, and, sure. you know, uh, the years that I was growing up in the 70s, there really wasn't much doctors could do. You know, there were very few treatments. Maybe they gave antibiotics. Um, I remember actually this dermatologist I went to as a young kid, he used to put us under the UV light right. <laughs> for my two oh, pimples, yeah. you know, oh, that yeah. was that and put a little steroid cream. I think today that would be all malpractice, but, um, maybe you could talk to our listeners a little bit too. 
little bit your approach to acne and any of the any sure. of the big breakthroughs you know that sure. are really sure. helping sure. teenagers take because you know it's, as you know it's uh <laughs> i'll just have to share one more thing from dr beltrani because he was such an influence on, on my career and i'm sure yours too i'll never forget once we walked into a room at columbia to the clinic and there was a kid with terrible acne and he the the, the you know the teenager you could tell was so distraught and you know dr beltrani you know first goes in you know with his kind of bubbly personality and, and tries to connect with the young teenager and i'll never forget the lie it made me laugh he goes look he goes we're gonna do whatever x y and z with creams and get you better and he goes and before you know it you're gonna turn out as handsome as i am and you know at that time dr Beltrani was bald he was like in his late 60s and i think the teenager yeah. looked and he goes if that's how i'm gonna turn out i think i'll see <laughs> acne you know sure. uh, but but he sure. knew how to make kids laugh and uh yeah. but anyway so what do you what do you tell the, the, the young young people today who are well in, in particular when they're coming in for that i mean it's interesting some people are very comfortable having the occasional pimple or issue we know it's incredibly common. It doesn't mean it has to be something that you have to endure. And sadly, when you travel around the world, you see people who have had the devastating effects of horrible, scarring cystic acne who are forever changed. Now, y'all, that's not specifically the same as heart disease and just going to kill you instantly. The same exact time, it can change how you interact with people, how people interact with you, self-confidence, I think it's essential to have an approach to it. And I think it's understanding that there is a stepwise approach to acne care. It may be as simple as using a particular over-the-counter cleanser or wash that may may loosen dead skin, may exfoliate, may kill bacteria a bit. It may be needing to use some of these stronger medicines. And acne is not something that 100% of the time you say, get through your teenage years and it's all over, you'll never have right. it again. Right. Many adults have acne. And in fact, many people, men, and particularly women, postmenopausal, end up seeing acne that they never had wow. as kids. And it, it's not bizarre. It's not unusual. And it can be difficult to deal with. So for many years, we only had a few things in our armamentarium, as you know. We had things like antibiotics, whether it be topical or oral. Uh, we had things that would exfoliate, things like salicylic acid that would just peel the skin. Uh, people would use ultraviolet, and ultraviolet did help. Mm-hmm. Many people, years later, ended up with skin cancers from mm-hmm. that. I know mm-hmm. people in my family who've had that happen to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was effective at that time. Right. Uh, there, life evolves within medicine. We see over the decades as we understand certain things. Today, we have an incredible array of incredibly potent and useful and with low morbidity, low issues, topical, as well as oral. And really, we're looking at topicals that may include, you know, better penetrating topical antibiotics, agents that inhibit some of the blockage that creates blackheads or just blockage in the pores, which are really the source, the initial lesion of acne. You get more and more dead skin that fills up a hair follicle, and that's a blackhead, basically a plug of dead skin. But behind that bacteria that's normally on the skin may grow. So we have some way to loosen that blockage, and those are what the, the category of drugs everyone knows are called 
retinols or vitamin A retinoids, mm-hmm. vitamin A derivatives. So retin-A as a particular drug, tretinoin, which is what it is, is actually just a, pharm- a pharmacologic dose of something our body has and utilizes all the time, but in higher dose. And there mm-hmm. are many versions of that that are topical. Yeah, to so I have I have my thing. Which I'll, yeah, you're talking about absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As, as one of the things that we utilize. Uh, right now, there's a, a new topical anti-androgen cream that's come out within the year that's been excellent for patients to inhibit the local androgen production hormones, the male type hormones that men and women have that drive the sebaceous oil glands in our skin produce oil. And it's that oil that may in fact be the, the source of making those bits of dead skin that flake off our skin microscopically stickier to create some of that blockage. So we're kind of getting at the root of it in the way of hormones. I think many people, many women are aware that uh, for more inflammatory acne, oral contraceptives have been useful as a hormonal approach. An oral medicine that we've had that you're aware of, spironolactone, a very mild diuretic that we've had that patients have used with their blood pressure medicines to help inhibit the loss of potassium. A lot of the diuretic, which are drugs that allow you to basically lose fluid and salt from the kidneys and the urine, uh, we lose potassium, which can set things off wrong in our body. And spironolactone is one of those medicines that's often added. Turns out to be a very potent anti-androgen. And so that's often used sometimes as a single agent or with other things to inhibit acne. And of course, now almost on to 30 years of having isotretinone, or we know the name of Accutane, which is probably the single best agent that we do have. And this came out of uh, actually research for anti-cancer drugs. And the retinoids are used, the whole class, there are specific ones that are phenomenal as anti-cancer drugs, normalizing irregular growths. And one of those happened to have been phenomenal for acne, for suppressing the oil gland production. So that's a medicine that is phenomenal for probably, again, the best medicine for acne. Yeah, it is a game changer. You know, I just, I'm curious your opinion, though. Would you say that Accutane, because I know, I think it was years ago, it was used for head and neck cancers, actually. Yeah, uh, yeah. the retinoids are. And right. They, they actually, the class of drugs. So still would you consider it, though, more a vitamin derivative or uh, a chemotherapeutic? Yeah, well. Or somewhere in between? Well, it's interesting. Vitamin, as you know, vitamins are, by definition, essential elements or essential products that we need in our body that our body will utilize for normal metabolic uh, day-to-day living that we can't produce. It has to be provided from outside of our body. Vitamin A, which are all the retinoids or derivatives of vitamin A, an essential vitamin we have to have to survive. You need vitamin Mm -hmm. A. Um, In high dose, has some very interesting effects and people feel that it's almost will be called in, in the realm of a hormone. Vitamin A is incorporated into the cellular structure, into the nucleus of the cell of every one of our living cells to have an effect upon that, that gene translation and transcription and protein production, which is what our genes do. Mm-hmm. I mean, so th- it is actually a hormone in that it's having that effect within that cellular function. Hmm. So it is used as a kind of chemotherapy. In fact, there's a certain kind of leukemia, as you're aware of, that they use a derivative of, of a retinoid that is, is essential and, and 
oh, well. amazingly potent for that particular subtype of, of leukemia. That's mm-hmm. a retinoid. So it, it is a hormone. It is a, it's a chemotherapy and happens to have some phenomenal side effects that we can talk about when we get into anti-aging. Okay. Uh, let me ask, let me ask you this. You know, I do holistic medicine with my wife Ricky, yes. and uh, but it made me flash back to when we're talking about dermatology about some things when I was a kid. That I don't know if these are old wives' tales or not, but again, let's say how diet is a factor in yeah. acne. So, for example, when I was growing up, you know, when I would get a couple of acne lesions, my mother was like, "No greasy food," you know, uh, "No stay away from the fast food." Has a lot of iodine, um, you know, things of that nature. Uh, is that all bunk? I mean, I'm not that those foods yeah. are good for you. Yeah, but I, mean, I, I, think, I think it's a great question. I think what, what seemed to be kind of a wives' tale, and that's not to put down wives in the least. So Old wives' tale. Old exactly, wives. Yeah, right? Right, right. It, it just, it just, you know, there is some truth to it. Is there, there really? There is actually some truth to it. And part of it, what's been studied pretty well, are foods that somehow predispose that are high glycemic foods. So oh, those foods okay. that rapidly elevate glucose. Okay. And you can imagine, you know, pasta, pizza, as well as the oil, but you have also all those, the simple flour that will elevate glucose, drop it, and that hormonal change has been shown to be associated with flares of acne. Of course, you probably read and you know about certain things of the, uh, things like milks or products that have, hormones that have been given right. to the animals that may in fact be having a hormonal effect yes. on the body may in some way have an effect too. So I think it's softer, but in some people may be significant to kind of particularly the, the high glycemic foods. You know, the other thing that I definitely noticed, um, and it's really circling back to hormones, which is a lot of things what you're mentioning is also stress. Now, I mean, look, we can't all avoid stress, but all of us at certain points of our lives are maybe under enormous stress. I remember, I think it was in my thirties at one point I was, in practice and I was breaking out in acne all the time. And I was like, Oh my God, what I got past this. You know, what is it? Why is this happening? And I really reflected back and I mean, you know, sure. High stress means high cortisol in our bodies, et cetera. Right. So is that again, something that you tend to see also yes. people have something? Absolutely. That, you know? Absolutely. You know, before opening in a show that I might be involved with a musical, mm-hmm. uh, I have a, I have three or four patients who break out consistently. They're lawyers whenever they're going to trial. They mm. always break out. Uh, you know, we definitely see that hormonal influence and, you know, stress before the paper is due in college. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, Even right. Mm-hmm. In high school, you know, all, all, yeah, absolutely. There's a, a, an incredibly potent stress life-related issue in terms of a correlation with acne. One quick thing, too. Uh, facials, good, bad, doesn't make a difference. Yeah, I, I think the question is going to be, what is the goal of the facial? Right. I think... If we talk about that concept of hormone oil production, blockage of the hair follicle, collection of dead skin, growing bacteria, that's not necessarily affecting any, by having your face cleaned, Yeah, it's going to affect that pathophysiology. Having said that, if someone has lots of blockage, and now the medicines we may use won't penetrate because there's physically a block sitting there, mm-hmm. facial may be very useful for allowing penetration of, of topical medicines. You may look better not having, if someone has kind of the oxidized oils that give you the black appearance of blackheads, which is not dirt. It really is the oil changing color with oxygen. And by the way, if that stuff of oil and dead skin is below the surface and doesn't happen to reach the air, those blackheads are not black at all. They're white. Oh, but wow. these are what we call comedone. And when you 
when people look at products to put on their skin, it says non-comedonal. It really means right. not acne producing. Yeah. I think I, those things are um, are essential to understand that there is that whole process going on that we need to unblock that. Cleaning may be very, very useful. Having said that, my mentor never touched patients who had lots of blockage, allowed the medicines to do it. I don't know if that's so great either. I think people, if you have a large inflammatory acne pseudocyst that we know is, is incredibly sore and painful and is going to cause tissue damage and may cause permanent scarring, I would prefer to see that, that area drained. I Get see. that pus out, allow it to heal more heal. basic mm-hmm. surgical tenne. But again, it depends upon the kind of facial. If it's a facial that someone feels relaxed, they're getting massaged, it feels good. Maybe that takes the stress level down. Does that does good. that directly though change anything? I don't know. I don't, that's I don't interesting. So. Can kids also can they overwash their face? And is there yeah, certain sure. soaps that you recommend also that are maybe overall better than others? Yeah, I mean I, I, I tend to be exceptionally simple but straightforward. My skincare with my acne patients, I ask them, you know what, use your hands to wash with. Now looking mm-hmm. for stiff stiff washcloths or buff puffs or abrasives initially use warm water if you're going to use soap you want to get that excess oil off you know Mm. something that's going to be unscented something that's more of a dermatologic so i I like those things like cerave cetaphil neutrogena but i don't necessarily always go for the acne version or the toners and clarifiers that may suck mm. out excess oil because someone's going to say if a little is good, then a lot. Is right? They go. They go, well, like, like, a, like a teenager. Like I'm saying, too. Sometimes you'll hear they'll come in. I remember we were in the clinic in Columbia, and they say, "Oh my God, you know, doctor, I don't know why I'm getting this acne. I wash my face, you know, 15 times a day, right. and their skin right. was like dry as uh, absolutely." Bone. And I think what's kind of interesting about that is uh, kind of it's felt that you can remove the excess oil on the outside of the skin and what may come out of your hair follicles may improve, but most people feel within about two hours, that oil's back. Mm. So if you're actually washing to remove that oil, you maybe want to look a little less shiny, be gentle with that excess outer layer of skin oil, but it's going to be coming back. And if you end up drying your skin out exceptionally, your body's going to gear up and try to prevent that dryness by creating more oil, more mm, rapid, mm, more volume. Mm. So to be as gentle as possible in yeah. my mind. I think okay. that's the, that makes the sense. simplest of approaches. Makes sense. All right, let's move on to the fun stuff, cosmetics. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody wants to look younger. Amen. <laughs> um, however, like the area of holistic medicine that I practice, there's a lot of misinformation out there probably about cosmetic products. I mean, a lot of times too, when I see anything and I start looking at the ingredients, you know, probably the one thing that they tout is at the bottom of the ingredients, you know, like I, I, there was something once I saw with vitamin C and I, it was a, you know, they, you know, it said it's a great antioxidant for aging spots, et cetera. And I saw it was like all the way at the bottom, there's probably like a drop of vitamin C and everything else was, you know, steroid, alcohols, et cetera, et cetera. So, right. What are you recommending to your patients that come in and say, look, Dr. Toback, I don't want to get all these age spots. It makes me look, you know, like my grandfather or I, you know, I'm getting way too many wrinkles. What's the things like retin-A, hyaluronic acid, vitamin C, take us through a couple of things that you think. Sure, absolutely. People should. So so 
conceptually, and let, let's preface it by saying, mm-hmm. please avoid the sun exposure at this right. point. Right. If you don't have to smoke, please don't smoke. Oh, God. Those things will age you dramatically. Right. Now, it doesn't mean once you're aged, if you stop smoking, suddenly all your lines will go away. That's just not um, what's going to happen. You need a good but, plastic surgeon for that. But <laughs> Those things will absolutely age you more rapidly. Please stop those things, too. Yeah. So UV protection, cut the smoking out. But I think conceptually in terms of the things we use topically, if we just kind of talk about the topical world. Yes, yeah, that's what I was to talk about. the world yet, but the topical world. Um, there are two kind of general broad brushstrokes of what we have in terms of things to put on the skin. Uh, and one of them would be antioxidants. So we understand that, you know, there are free radicals that will be formed in the skin, whether it be from ultraviolet light, topical products, chemicals that may get on the, on the skin, and they will oxidize. That They have radicals of oxygen that will combine with collagen fibers or elastin fibers because some of the components of our skin that give us that firmness and that smoothness to accelerate that aging effect. So there are a number of antioxidants that are used, and these every one of the products you look at are going to have some combination of a vitamin C, a vitamin A, a ferulic acid, many botanicals that have uh, coffee extract. I mean, there are many that have antioxidant effect. And the but question, Dr. Like, aren't these better if you ingest them versus putting them topically? Or no, well, is it really? Well, it's, it's a great question, and I think it relates to what the product is. Okay. So, a, an example. Yeah, if you are anemic, if you have low blood, you're bleeding, or this need blood, you take a, a pint of blood, a unit of blood, and smear it on your skin, it's mm. not going to get inside Nothing your body happening. and suddenly right. give you more blood. Right. That needs to be introduced in a different way. Right. Having said that, if we go to something like vitamin C, as you and I know, vitamin C is a water-soluble vitamin. It's not going to be retained long-term or in very high dose, and certain people may predispose to issues, whether it's going to be uh, renal stones, kidney stones. I mean, the people who will not be able to tolerate or, ha- or her target where you want it to target. So the advantage of topical medicines, and this is what's the, the issue with vitamin A, if we have pharmacologic doses that we can put on locally, you do and can, with the right preparation, get penetration into the tissue. And this is the situation we have a topical cortisone. You know, someone who has an eczema flare, a plaque of psoriasis, you can apply a topical cortisone, get significant absorption, locally improvement, and we're not giving people oral cortisone to look for the effect there. So I think certain products will penetrate. I think certain ones have had have breakthroughs to figure out how to get the drug in. So that's what's always improving in some of these products. But those are the antioxidants to inhibit the oxidizing nature of that, that oxygen with those, those components of our skin to inhibit the destruction of them. Right. Then you get the products that really cause something as a change of cellular function, potentially. And these are going to be things like vitamin A. We talked about how it acts as a hormone. Uh, topical vitamin A, whether it's an over-the-counter, whether it be the retinols, the alcohol versions of the retinoids, which tend to be milder, they're less potent, also less side effect, Mm. as opposed to the prescription forms of tretinoin, 
or drugs similar to Zaratine, Trifaratine. There are multiple other adapalene. There are multiple drugs that are going to be prescription that may, may have greater effect. They will affect cell function much, much more so. People look at things like the uh, peptides. Uh, you're looking at some growth factors that are being produced. And I don't know if every single one of them is incredibly useful. And what's mm. interesting is as much as I like to be cutting edge, at least trying to, in some of my knowledge, it's not that the, sec- the second something comes out, I want my patient to use it. I don't want my patient to I, be I agree with you. The yeah. first 10,000 patients once something right. is released, and then you find out it's a problem. Right. Things that I know work, I will recommend to patients that I'm aware of. So yes, I do use the, the retinols and the retinoids on patient's skin. I do use antioxidants on their skin, understanding that these are long-term medicines. You don't use a drug like uh, vitamin A for four weeks. And, and then yes, expect Morial, whoever may show, yes, we have photomicrography that shows, yeah, there's a change or improvement. But if we're serious about long-term improvement, it's long-term care. Right. This is the analogy I do use with, with all my patients. Aging, the clock is running. And if we use or do a procedure, which we may talk about, you know, whether they be lasers or injectables or acid peels, whatever that might be, I see that as setting that clock back. But then it starts to run again. Right. I've said this on the podcast before because we've done a lot of things with nutrition. I almost don't like the term anti-aging because we're yeah. all going to be aging. You know, it's a question of, you know... I forgot the term I like better, but essentially saying, you know what, to basically age very gracefully, you know, to yes. look to look healthy, you know, um, yeah. and I hopefully appropriate. You. But I have one other question for you, too, because I've had patients sometimes tell me this, and this may sound crazy, but using something like Vaseline on the skin, does yeah. that like help, you know, with the... Uh, so, I happen to be a huge... Advocate for Vaseline in certain ways. Okay, let's hear. Let's hear that. Because this everybody can afford some Vaseline. This that's uh, it's not going to break their account. Even with inflation, I think Vaseline is still fairly reasonable. Way back when, the turn of the century before, yeah, you know when the first came out, Cheeseboro Ponds came out with Vaseline. I don't know if you know this, but part of the the derivative, how this kind of came about, I think goes back to at least the the oil rigs. And some of the material that was coming out with oil rigs that would come out as they're trying to get that crude oil mm. would be this discharge of schmutz, this stuff that would come yeah, out yeah. that was petroleum jelly. Yeah. And oddly, it was found as an observation that some of these people, many of these people working on, on, <laughs> on, on the rigs, had phenomenal skin. Really? They had I phenomenal see. skin. And uh-huh. then I think it probably five or six more steps in logic. Right. This product is out. <laughs> now, you can overdo anything. Of you course. Know, I, when I have patients use Vaseline, there's certain situations. When someone says to me, uh, what's a good moisturizer? If, you're, if your goal in the moisturizing is to just trap moisture in the outer layer of skin a little bit more. So the fact is... Vaseline can be a phenomenal moisturizer if used in particular specific ways. Right. One of those subtleties or nuances when I have patients to use Vaseline to moisturize, I usually say, you know what, dampen your skin first. You're going to wash your face, get a little moisture on your face because a small, tiny dab of Vaseline on, ma- on moist skin will suddenly spread incredibly easily and smoothly without having that gooey, thick appearance. And once there's water and Vaseline, now you're trapping that moisture that was in the skin 
into the skin more more effective. Well, one of the things I know you've taught me, and I think it's really important, and I know there's been literature on this too, is that like when someone, ha- um, you know, if you've taken off a lesion or you know whatever yeah. has a scar yeah. somewhere, yes. by p- applying either mupirocin um, mu- or mu- with you know mupirocin, mupirocin, so hard to say mupirocin. Yes. Yeah. Which has obviously is in an ointment, which is basically Correct. a lot of Vaseline Correct. or putting Vaseline itself Correct. seems to help the scar heal better, right? I guess it's not, not, not only that, most when I'm doing procedures, as you know well, and if I'm doing cold steel surgery with stitches, and this is clean surgery, meaning it's not an infection that I've, mm-hmm. I've been sized and drained, mm-hmm. it's not something that was contaminated or an area that's exceptionally susceptible to infection. Most of us in dermatology, and not every profession, but it's catching on much more widely, most of us don't use topical antibiotics anymore in that post-op period. Most of us will use Vaseline or petroleum jelly. And the reasoning is we understand that a mildly occluded or blocked or coated environment, particularly things that are scraped or cut that are clean, will heal because of the migration of skin from the outside of the lesion and from inside, usually those uh, those structures like sweat glands and pores. That's how you heal a scrape that is not a full depth scrape into the fat or deep into the dermis. That's where you do typically heal. When you heal, it may look a little pink, maybe a little discolored, but you heal without that thick, heavy scar. That migration of skin is is definitely facilitated in this moist environment. So typically the first few days, Vaseline is all I use. And again, that's different if I think someone needs to have a topical antibiotic. Now, when people use their polyspore, neospore, and bacitracin, most of that's Vaseline. Where I see as a dermatologist, of course, I don't see the 80 million people who use it with no problem. I see all the patients who come into me and say, my God, I had this thing that I scratched myself. Look at this rash I have. And it turns out to be from the polymyxin and polysporin or the bacitracin or the neomycin. So we remove all that stuff. Absolutely. You get an infected or a dirty wound. You're you're, you're skateboarding. Now you've scraped off and there are bits and pieces of asphalt sitting in the skin. Yeah, maybe I'm not going to use it in that setting. Um, But Vaseline's phenomenal. So for me, for the simplicity and probably the final point about Vaseline, when I see patients who've used other products, their, their makeup, there are always components to it. There's always going to be something to balance the pH. Like you said, all those ingredients and then the active ingredient at the bottom, they're to allow the maintenance of the proper pH for maybe absorption of that drug locally or for prevention of bacterial growth. People ask me, hey, you know, I have Aquaphor, faster healing ointment at home. And I'm a big fan. I like Aquaphor. Mm-hmm. But if someone says to me, what should I put on my wound that's clean you just did? I don't have Vaseline. Can I use Aquaphor? And, and the teaching I give is always, like everyone else who, t- who does this work, always the same. Aquaphor typically is Vaseline. But they infuse it or whip water into it to make right. it a little less thick than Vaseline. Right, so it's, not, so it's not as messy. Once you get water in a topical product, you have to have a way of killing the bacteria that will grow in it. So Aquaphor has lanolin or wool alcohol that's added to it. And I see the people that have the reaction to the wool alcohol. Yeah, right. It's just simpler. Yeah, I I think that's a great point. It's simple. And I've had patients, I can't tell you the number of patients, grateful to say, you know what? 
I was spending you know, $800 on this crazy cream derived from a moss at the bottom of uh, Everest. <laughs> and you know what? I now use uh, Vaseline. And Vaseline. It's, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, it's, yeah. You know, it's like, you remember uh, the, like the movie, uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. You know, yes. the guy had the guy had Windex, Windex which he sprayed Windex. on everything, which, I, which I wouldn't recommend. Please, listeners, um, do not use that. Please, Vaseline, as Dr. Agree. Tobik says, I do. And, you know, just one <laughs> quick story, too. It must be like 20, 25 years ago, actually. I believe it or not, had to admit a patient to Columbia's uh, dermatology ward. I don't know if they still have that. They had like a, probably these days, I don't know if they have a separate ward, but back, I'm mean, talking about 25 no, years Now ago. in our days, you basically have the hospitalists. Right, you're just, you're just like thrown in with everybody yeah. else. But they had obviously, back in those days, when I guess psoriasis was bad, they had a sure. specific ward. And I had a patient that I actually had to co-admit with Dr. Vincent DeLeo, who I know you know. Sure, Because the well. patient had the most extreme, uh, contact reaction i'd ever seen in my life it was like from head to toe yeah uh, it's funny she was allergic to oranges and somehow something in orange got into a product she used so from head to toe she was as yeah. red as a tomato yeah and i called up dr delio i said you know i i, I think we should, i don't know what to do with her you know we <laughs> nothing yeah. you know oral steroids is not going to really do it so he says all right let's admit her but this is the funny thing dr toback it was like so when I went in to visit her, whatever, I, you know, and she was laying there for a few days, whatever, too. Basically, she was in a Vaseline bath. Dr. DeLeo had her head to toe yeah. just and they were smearing every four hours more Vaseline on her body. So right. that to me said something like this. Well, stuff that, can't that, be bad. Right. By the way, that was back to my training when we used to have to take, you know, every third night on call in the hospital. Okay. And we had a very large ward because before many of the drugs for psoriasis were available. Right. Right. The Geckerman regimen, which goes back decades, which is basically tar, Cold tar, tar bath, yeah. and, and exposure to ultraviolet, bed rest. And people will come in with the erythrodermic, which means that total body redness like you described. Yes, right. You have to literally quiet that skin down. Now, we have better medicines right now, much better than we had before, but not at that yeah. time. We didn't but have I'm it. saying, the, yeah, the dermatology. Well, I have to tell you something. The dermatology residents have it way too easy now. Because one, as you <laughs> were just saying, you were probably busy changing the the tar on these patients. And what I remember from Dr. Beltrani back in his day of training dermatology, he was busy doing lumbar punctures, spinal oh, taps sure. on the sure. syphilis patients. So it wasn't I all. Did the same, I did the all, same thing during did my you? dermatology did you really? training. I you bet I did. See, today it's all glamour. You know, I mean, I know a lot of the guys go into and the uh, women it's, it's go into dermatology. That's an aspect, but let me say, you know, <laughs> the fact the fact is, hospital based dermatology is some of the most intensive medicine you've ever seen, really? especially with issues of immunosuppression, mm. HIV, chemotherapy, transplant situations. Every patient that walks into the hospital, at least at our teaching hospital, Columbia, yeah, they're going to call the dermatology, yeah, because they know they don't necessarily know what's going on. And you have to have someone who knows what. So our residents, the fact is, when we were in hospital, when we slept in the hospital, we were working because yeah. the emergency rooms all well, the time. Well, Columbia has a huge, I mean, I, I remember too, you have the Neurological Institute there. Yeah. And I know you and, and some of the your other colleagues who did rounds, you know, because yeah, I remember sure. going on rounds with them. Absolutely. I mean, it was fascinating. You have these people who are very ill with neurological or whether it's oncologic cancer problems and they have skin issues and you guys and are getting not, called. And you're right. And it's not just a skin issue. Oh, that's, that's kind of curious. It's like, no, 
that happens to be a sign that they have a fungal infection, that they're going to die right. of in the next two days. Right. And you need to find that now, not when it's convenient for you in the morning. Right. Not on the, on the time. The, yeah. Mm-hmm. You cannot wait. And if you yeah. do, you may be responsible for the demise of that patient. So the fact is hospital-based dermatology, incredibly active. Since a lot of that has moved to outpatient maintenance, just like out, you know, surgery centers, procedures being done out, same thing happened. You'll, you'll see that some of the sickest of patients still being taken care of in the outpatient setting. So dermatology, we know dermatologists, the average patient, which I was, I'm an average patient, from what we go to them for. Mm-hmm. That's not what we do in our whole day. That's just one part of it. So right. it's a phenomenally complex, interesting field. Could you ever see urgent dermatology centers? <laughs> uh, you know, I think there's urgent dermatology issues. Yes. But uh, those, those, are, those become the emergency rooms. Yeah, which becomes hospital. a disaster because until uh, right. Yeah, I mean, look, if you're fortunate enough to be at a uh, a tertiary care center where right. they have dermatology right. residents who are well trained and can turn right. to attendings when they need right. help, that's a whole different ball game. Oh, it is, and in terms of equity, that's an important thing too in in, in yeah. our country. Totally, yeah, yeah. Anyway, this has been so much fun. I've known you for thirty years, and I, you know, as I told in the beginning, I can't say enough great things, honestly no. and truthfully, about you. But I never I think I had a chance to talk to you for an hour, so it's like a lot of fun. That's is there anything true. else that I, the listeners too. would like to know if they want to follow any kind of work that you're doing? I know you also have a whole acting career, so I don't know anything you want to toss out now. The floor is open. What, what well, that's, that, that I'm, I've been fortunate, really fortunate all my life before I did medicine, I was interested in theater and I, I've been able to, to, to do theater, to act, to mostly musical theater initially and light opera. But now it's been a lot of fun doing small bits and pieces, whether it be in a TV or a movie, but mostly it's still musical theater and working with some wonderful people. And I have huge respect for all people who, who work and live and try to survive in the arts. Oh, God, I, have a, I, have a, I have a wife and family that's put up with me <laughs> through lots of long time. Yeah, Lydia, oh, Lydia's special. She's the other oh, part my of that God. team. But, but I have been very, very fortunate to have an amazing practice, have amazing training and work with great colleagues. Are you and in a also, show right now, though? Uh, yeah, in fact, now. we start rehearsals in a week and a half for She What's Loves the show? What's the show? She What's loves it? me. She loves me. And where's it? Where's it? Where's it? Um, that will be at a place called ARC, A-R-C Stages in Pleasantville, New York, which is okay. a, a phenomenal theater company. We're in our 10th year, which is a con- this ARC comes as a matter of the fact that it's a combination of three different theater companies. One was uh, Little Village Playhouse, which was an educational stage in the region of uh, what was called Coyote Theater, the professional stage and Chappaqua Drama Group, the community mm-hmm. stage all under one roof and all of us having productions at different times. And I've been incredibly fortunate to work with wonderful people. And I got to say my patients, I have a lot of people who are are in, in the industry, whether they be actors, producers, writers, uh, I've, I've been extremely blessed and have huge respect for it. So I get a chance to kind of perform and enjoy that. But, uh, I see it on both sides of it. So that's your side job. But anyway, I know that your patients are really fortunate to have you as their dermatologist. So thank you again for taking the time. And please, for any of my listeners, if you've really enjoyed this episode, which I think you should and learned a lot, please leave us a review. It really helps a lot. And uh, until next time.